Come on down to the basement. I want to show you something. My wife and I didn't think anything of it. We followed this pastor and his wife down some wooden steps to their basement. It was more like a cellar. What we walked into was a grocery store in their basement. She was big into couponing and would bring home a car full of stuff for 12 cents. Uh, Here's our toothpaste. It was more toothpaste than they carry at Walmart. Uh, Here's the real steel. See this two-ply toilet paper? We got it for one cent a roll. We spend Friday night separating the two-ply into one-ply, and so each roll counts as two rolls. My wife and I were newly married, and we were traveling the Midwest on a, on a preaching tour. I would preach in 70 churches in 90 days. It was a recruitment thing for our college where we worked. And we were still in the honeymoon period of marriage and wondered if this is what all married people did on a Friday night after 30 years of marriage. <laughs> what shook us even more was what we saw in that basement. For the first time in our lives, we met end-time preppers. Every year, there is a record-setting amount of money spent by survivorists and preppers on things to put in their basements and in their bunkers. They are preparing for the end time. Whether that comes from an electric magnetic pulse that destroys all computers and electronics and vehicles, or if it comes by a financial collapse leading to a failed economy where money doesn't even matter anymore, or if the end comes from a black swan event an earthquake, a nuclear attack, some pathogens, or some global infectious virus leading to a pandemic. I read quite a few end-time prepper lists this week of things that better be in your basement or in your bunker when the end time comes. One, you need a water filtration system. You, You need batteries and lots of them for your flashlights. You need a solar-powered radio. Duct tape, stormproof matches, propane gas, bleach, first aid kit, fishing line, lots of freeze-dried and dehydrated foods. You need food seeds. One lady found a way to preserve eggs for 9 to 12 months. Cheese for 20 to 25 years. They even found a way to preserve meat. One man said, while everyone else is eating ramen noodles, I'll be eating filet mignon. I guess you want to make sure you're eating well at the end of the world. In this pastor's basement, my wife last week was recounting and remembering that there were more canned items than she had ever seen before. Now, uh, the list continues. You need bartering items like candles, tarps, and liquor because those drunks will trade anything in the end for liquor. And oh yeah, don't, don't forget about guns. You need a full military arsenal to stave off the masses when they come for your toilet paper. One father got really obsessed about this and trained each of his grown children to lead in a certain aspect of prepping. His daughter is a master metal worker and welder. His son does radio communication. Another son prepares by working in hazardous material, wearing his Ebola hazmat suit. Another is in charge of weaponry. He can kill a squirrel with a ninja star. This father wants his family to be able to survive without an infrastructure. They meet every Wednesday night to discuss the plan if the end time should happen this week. I found it surprising that all of these kids were actually married. (laughs) Imagine you're dating someone and you go over on Wednesday night to meet the family for the first time and 
They're sitting around the table with their war paint on their faces, practicing tactical movements with all the lights off in the house. End-time preppers. Now, I fed into a certain stereotype of end-time preppers that the media loves to promote. There they are in their tinfoil hats. But the truth is, the largest amount of money being spent on underground bunkers is coming from the Silicon Valley. They are buying luxury bunkers costing in the millions. These are educated people, doctors, lawyers, tech executives, influential people who run multi-million dollar companies. Peter, the human author of our text, he's no doomsday prophet, but he does announce the end is near. In verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. What follows is effectively Peter's end time preppers list. And there are four things on his list. First, keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs. Secondly, be deeply loving when everyone else is insanely critical. Thirdly, open the doors of your home. Don't build a bunker. Fourthly, share your gifts. Don't hoard your supplies. Now, Peter's going to tell us how to become a sanctified prepper. Just like the preppers, Peter is saying the end is near. But the end of what? Notice verse 7 again. But the end of all things is at hand. Peter is anticipating the coming of Christ for his church and the end of human history as we currently know it. God is wrapping up his drama of redemption and he's bringing all things to an end. Peter is anticipating the last scene in the play. Christ's second coming is the final act of redemptive history and we're just waiting for it to take place. We believe in the imminent return of Christ, meaning he could come at any moment. But the tense of the verb here means the end of all things is poised and ready to materialize. One New Testament commentator wrote, Peter is picturing Jesus Christ in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, awaiting one word. Go. Go, son. Get my bride, the church. She is now complete. Every page of the New Testament pants with an expectation for the return of Christ. He's at the door. We just don't know when he's walking through. All things are wrapping up and leading us to God's ultimate eschatological goal. What caused this former fisherman to say the end is near? Well, that's simple. He witnessed Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that inaugurated the last scene. God's plan of redemption is about to be wrapped up with a nice little red bow. We are in the final stage of human history. The end is near. Not chronologically, but theologically. It's been 2,000 years since Peter wrote these words, so it wasn't near chronologically. Jesus even warned his followers of this. He told them numerous parables about the second coming and he said it's going to be a long time or, or this man's going to be gone for a long journey. The first thing Peter writes on his end times preppers list is this. 
Keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs. Notice how verse 7 continues. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end is near. Be self-controlled. In other words, not panicking. You're not being led by your emotions. You control your emotions. Your emotions bow down to your mind. You have a cool head. Sober-minded, that's opposite of drunk-minded. Peter actually hit on that last week. Sober-minded, because the end of all things is near. Think sensibly. Don't be frenzied. This is actually a qualification for a pastor, but it is expected of all God's people. Self-controlled, sober-minded, these two words together could be translated, keep your head. It was Rudyard Kipling in his famous poem that said, you need to keep your head when all about you are losing theirs. We're not to panic. We are to keep our heads. Notice the next phrase, for the sake of your prayers. You must be in the front, right frame of mind when you pray. The state of your mind determines the effectiveness of your prayers. Believers cannot pray properly if their mind is unstable. You must not allow your mind to become dazed or distracted. Keep your mental faculties about you at all times, especially during the end times. Peter connects the nearness of the end with the need to pray. Edmund Clowney said, sobriety and a clear mind have one value above all others. They prepare us to pray. Now, let's take a step back. Let's talk about what Peter did not say. He did not say, the end is near, so scramble around to try to get things done. No, pray. Well, I need to accomplish all, I need to accomplish all these things. No, you're drunk-minded, not sober-minded. You need to pray. Piper calls this error whiskey productivity. It tastes so good, but it only makes you stagger as the end approaches. Now, in addition, Peter did not say, the end of all things is near. So let's make some end-time charts. Mm -mm. Some Christian Bible teachers read the end is near and they lose their heads. Chuck Smith, founder of Calvary Chapel, predicted that the generation born in 1948 would be the last generation born before the end of the world. Church, avoid overzealous eschatological extremism. Some of this end time talk is nothing more than the result of a hyperactive imagination. Avoid crazy predictions and anyone who causes eschatological frenzy. Every new controversy in the Middle East produces a slew of Facebook posts about the end times. The crazy sandwich board prophets aren't on the corner anymore. They're behind a computer typing crazy stuff. And some of you are reposting it. Marita said, eschatology shouldn't make us fanatical, but faithful. The old timers used to say, you don't know when Jesus will return. You're not on the planning committee. You're on the welcoming committee. Peter was there with the other apostles at Jesus' ascension. And they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Peter heard with his own ears Jesus respond, it is not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, Peter, it's not your business to know when Jesus will return and set up his kingdom. It's your business to do the master's bidding till he comes to keep your head while others are losing theirs. Church, do mature end time living. Let's revisit Peter's end time prepper list. Number one, keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs. Number two, be deeply loving when everyone else is insanely critical. Verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Peter repeats the phrase one another three times in this section. He's talking to Christians. He's writing to churches. He wants the members of these local churches to love one another. What is the best motivation for loving fellow church members? The Lord is coming. Don't waste your time gossiping or grumbling or being insanely critical. Spend it loving. Love one another earnestly. Now that word has a word picture behind it. It's used of a racehorse that is stretched out in full gallop. It's also used historically of a track athlete in full stride. Love stretches, love strains. Such love is sacrificial, not sentimental. It requires the believer to stretch every spiritual muscle. When is the last time you've stretched or strained to show someone in this church you love them. Keep on loving. That's present tense. That's continual, not fits and starts. Here's what's wild. Peter is concerned about conflict among Christians in the church. And he says there are some behaviors that can destroy Christian community. I always laugh at people. Honestly, just right in their face. I always laugh at people that say they want to get back to church in the first century like they had no problems. Peter is here. Yeah, they do. There are pressures and stresses at, as the end nears and it strains relationships. And it's, isn't it hard to love when life is hard? Don't you sin against people more when you're stressed? As the end is coming nearer, we need each other more and we sin against one another more. Let me ask you a question. Who in this room annoys you? There's no, there's no need to point, church. That is extremely rude. Peter says this to you. Love one another. If you become extremely critical of someone, just picking apart everything they do, it's evidence that you're not loving them as you ought. Grudem says, where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound. Someone has to break the cycle of acting on hard feelings, retaliating in kind. Someone has to say, it's over. I will not speak of it anymore. 
I will not give bitterness a chance to take root. Church, love each other like your life depended on it. You know who does this really well? Churches in persecuted countries. Because they're not lulled to sleep like churches in the States. Now, the most puzzling part of today's passage is the last seven words of verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Here it is. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, here's what Peter is not saying. And I can say this with confidence. He's not saying if you love someone, it will atone for your sins. This is not a new way of salvation. Salvation by loving people. No. You can't make atonement for your sins by loving other Peter, people. Uh, P- Peter is not making a theological statement about sins being forgiven. Our love cannot pay the price for sin. Only Christ's work on the cross can do that. Nor is Peter saying to ignore or sweep under the rug sin in the church. Peter's already told us in chapter 1, do not cover up sin. Sin should not be ignored or denied. Peter said this verse is, uh, uh, John Piper said this verse is not endorsing um, keeping skeletons in the closet. It's not renouncing church discipline. Love does not condone sin, but it does cover sin. What does that mean? Well, Peter is actually paraphrasing an Old Testament verse, Proverbs 10 verse 12, where it says hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers up wrongs. Here's what that means. Love covers the offenses that destroy community. Love doesn't go around looking for the faults of others. R.C. Sproul said, Love does not seek to expose our neighbor for every, for every petty weakness. Peter wants us to avoid a hateful spirit. Pettiness and pickiness stir up trouble. Let the world be petty but not Christians. Love doesn't allow you to deal with someone strictly on the basis of their sins. Love takes the oxygen out of sin. As long as oxygen is present, forest fires rage. But if we take the air away, the fire settles down. May nothing evil be allowed to breathe for long in this assembly. One author wrote, The faucet of love should never be turned off. Let it flow deeply and fervently toward one another. Now, see what Peter's doing? He's teaching eschatology with ethics in mind. His end-time preppers list, number one, keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs. Number two, be deeply loving when everyone else is insanely critical. Number three, open the doors of your home. Don't build a bunker. Notice verse 9. Show hospitality to one another. Does the Bible support this bunker mentality? Stockpiling of food and guns to shield ourselves from the end. Christians aren't afraid of the end. We welcome it. Peter gives explicit instruction about what we are to do as we anticipate Jesus' return. Peter says, don't quit your job and run to the mountains. Don't abandon your local church. Paul rebuked the Thessalonians for something similar to this. Don't bunker down. Open up your home. 
Peter wants them to show hospitality to one another in the church. Now, I'll answer two questions. First, what did this mean for them? Secondly, what might it mean for us? First, what, does, what did this mean for them? In the first century, there, there were no Motel 6s. No one left a light on for you. There were a few inns, but they often doubled as brothels. They were unsafe and undesirable. The advancement of the gospel depended upon hospitality. For the first 200 years, the church met in homes, not buildings like this. Without someone opening up their home, there was no corporate worship gatherings on Sunday. In addition, some of these members were poor and didn't have a place to stay and needed time to get on their feet. And their lives were enriched by hospitality in the church. Consider how important hospitality was in light of Israel's history. Sproul pointed out that the Israelites, for most of their history, were semi-nomads. They had no permanent place of residence, but lived as wanderers in tents. As a result, they placed a high premium on hospitality. In addition, the New Testament begins with a failure to show hospitality to Joseph and Mary on the night of the birth of Jesus. These readers... They knew all of that. Secondly, what, what might this mean for us? Well, I'll give you five possible ways we could flesh this out in our day-to-day. -day. Number one, the end is near, so make some cookies. Number two, the end is near, so invite someone in the church over for dinner. Sanchez, an Englishman, said there's a common phrase among his people, and it's this, an Englishman's home is his castle. But we need to consciously see our homes as gifts to be opened and shared rather than castles to be retreated into and the drawbridge pulled up. Number three, the end is near. So make a meal for a family that has COVID or a family whose dad is deployed. Never ask, can I bring you a meal? Just say, I'm bringing you a meal. Tuesday night, five o'clock. But hospitality extends beyond this. It extends beyond the tangible acts of providing meals. It's the principle of opening up your life. Practice the spirit of hospitality. Number four, call and check up on church people. Ask them, how can I pray for you this week? Number five, join the hospitality team. <laughs> Peter's hospitality centered around corporate worship. Yours should too. People need to see a smiling face as they walk into the community of faith. Arrive early and talk to people before the service. Stay late and talk to people after the service. Find someone who's sitting alone. Help a worn out mother carrying one child in her arm and then carrying another child in a baby carrier and then kicking the last one into the children's building. Don't just stand back and laugh with your spouse like, remember when that was us? <laughs> Offer a helping hand. Hospitality isn't just limited to your home. Especially here, it was connected to corporate worship. Now, Peter is such a realist, and I love how he ends verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> Peter acknowledged that those who open their homes may grow tired of doing so. It's the Greek word gagusmos. Do hospitality without gagusmos. 
That is secretly wishing you didn't have to. In the first century, hospitality could make you a target for anti-Christian terrorism. They would snuff out these private gatherings. But let's bring it to us. What might we grumble about? Well, we could grumble about the time and effort it takes to fix a meal and straighten a house. We could grumble about having kids that you can't spank in your house. It's easy to begrudge hospitality. So why do it? Because our Savior is a hospitable Savior. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now again, I'd like to just pause and point out that every time the Bible gives you practical things to do, like hospitality, it's rooted in a doctrine, in this case, the second coming of Christ. Do hospitality because Jesus is coming back. All things are coming to an end. So make some cookies. Peter's end time prepper list, number one, keep your head when everyone else is losing theirs. Number two, be deeply loving when everyone else is insanely critical. Number three, open the doors of your home. Don't build a bunker. Number four, share your gifts. Don't hoard your supplies. We're going to take verse 10, a phrase at a time. Verse 10. As each has received a gift. Let's stop there. That means every Christian has received a gift. Nobody has been left out. The phrase spiritual gifts that is so common, um, I hate to tell you this, but it never appears in the Greek. Spiritual gifts, it's, it's nowhere in the Greek. It's grace gift, charisma gift in the Greek. Now, I will use the term spiritual gifts because it's so everywhere. But just know, I'm doing it reluctantly with a bad attitude. Peter says, everybody got a gift. No one got overlooked when God was handing out gifts. Wayne Grudem has an interesting definition of gift. He says, a gift is any talent or ability which is empowered by the Holy Spirit and able to be used in the ministry of the church. You may have gifts of which you are completely unaware. In the next verse, we're going to talk about what these gifts are. But let's talk about this. When did we receive these gifts? We could have received these gifts at birth. It's just part of God's natural wiring for us. Or we could have received them at salvation. A unique gifting. Peter continues. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Every Christian has, has received a gift. You are to use your gift to serve the church. Every Christian has received a gift. You are to use your gift to serve the church. If you're not serving your local church with your gifts, you are robbing your local church. You have no right to withhold your gift from the church. It's been given to you for the church. Alistair Beck says, gifts of the Spirit are not given to us as toys to be played with, but as tools to be used. Your gifts are not about you. They're for the building of the body of Christ. Gifts are not given for your own self-enjoyment or self-exaltation or to build your platform. Charles Spurgeon said, God gives much to you, 
that you may give it to others. It is only meant to run through you as through a pipe. Peter continues in verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's God's multicolored grace. John MacArthur says, every believer's spiritual giftedness is unique. As if each were a spiritual snowflake or fingerprint. And it is as if God dips his paintbrush into different colors or categories of gifts of his spiritual palette and paints each Christian a unique blend of colors. You are a steward of your gift, a manager of your gift. You do not own your gifts. You've been entrusted with your gifts and you will give an account with what you did with your gifts. Now this is gospel motivation for serving. It goes beyond, I serve because I ought to. No, I serve because I have been entrusted. Verse 11 is where we find the two categories of gifts. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves, let's just stop there. See, there are two types of gifts identified. Public gifts and private gifts. Or verbal gifts and nonverbal gifts. Or upfront gifts and behind the scene gifts. Now, public gifts or verbal gifts or upfront gifts are those that deal with the oracles of God. This is your preachers, your seminar teachers, your small group leaders, your children's ministry teachers, even musicians because they lead the people in singing theology. So, so that's public gifts. But then there are private gifts. Uh, that's verbal gifts. But then there are nonverbal gifts. That's upfront gifts. But then there are behind the scene gifts. And there are some gifts that keep you in the background. This doesn't mean they're insignificant. There are no insignificant gifts. They are behind the scenes, but God sees behind the scenes. One pastor said, we don't all sing the same note, but we were created for harmony. Another one said, the church is like an orchestra in that every person plays their part, long or short, loud or soft. I think the best category for gifts is speaking gifts and serving gifts. It's actually in the verse. <laughs> whoever speaks, whoever serves. Now, serving gifts could be a million different things. Now, Marita points out that this does not mean that those who serve never speak and those who speak never serve. It's simply to say that these functions of word and deed ministry are worked out in the body through the proper exercise of individual gifts. Now, where you've all wanted me to go. How do you identify your gift? Well, the, there are spiritual gift tests. They stress me out. I'm not about them. Uh, notice Peter isn't giving out any tests. He isn't getting specific with the gifts of serving. He's not fretting saying, oh man, what if someone in the church can't identify their gift? What if they go home wondering what their gift is? He's not sweating that at all. 
There are actually five different lists in the New Testament of gifts. And together, they mention about 20 gifts. No one gift is on every list, and no list includes all the gifts. It falls out of our purview to, to visit all of these texts, but know that God never gives us a master list. He does gives a, give us a representative list, but never an exhaustive list. Tim Keller points out that there are two ways to identify your gifts. And he pulls it from a certain place in Romans, but I think it fits well here. First, self-examination. Ask, what do I enjoy doing? Am I good at what I enjoy? Where do I feel God's pleasure? Like uh, Eric Little, when I run, I sense God's pleasure. What do you like to do with skill and joy? What do you feel most alive doing? So first, self-examination. Second, this is not from Keller, this is, this is mine. Second, outside examination. Outside examination. It's, it's best to, to try all the gifts um, so you can learn what your spiritual aptitudes are. But think, what do wise people ask me to do over and over again? Your skill will ripen as you do it. Now, let me just back up from the text for a minute and give you a few thoughts on this grace gifting. See, I couldn't even do spiritual gifting. I couldn't even say it. It's grace gifting, is what the Bible says. Let's just take a step back. Let me give you some thoughts on this grace gifting. One is this. Be willing to submit to your local church pastors on gifting. Well, I need to sing. I'm gifted musically. Well, those that have ears disagree. <laughs> well, well, I'm only interested in serving in upfront areas. I have to lead a small group or I have to do whatever. Your gifting must strengthen the church. And if, if the elders believe that your perceived gifting is not strengthening the church, submit. Here's another. We work at all the giftings, even though we may have a favorite. It's like baseball. We can play every infield position, but we really love to play shortstop. Someone may have the gift of giving, but that doesn't mean that every member doesn't give. Someone may have the gift of encouragement, but that doesn't mean you, you can't see someone who's sad and give them gospel encouragement. Someone may have the gift of evangelism, but that doesn't mean you don't seek out opportunities every day to give the gospel. Be willing to serve your local church outside of your gifting. Yesterday, I finished a book entitled uh, Love Your Church. It's a good little read. On a side note, I finished another book, uh, Bridge of Terabithia, remember that childhood book? I never read it. Anyway, Marita's book said, don't be bothered if you're volunteering in a place where you may not be most gifted. See it as an act of loving service. Move into areas of clear and urgent need, even if you're not gifted in that area. Such humble service reflects our Lord. Maybe you have a legit gift and the elders don't want you to exercise that gift in the church right now. Fine. Rejoice in doing your second, third, and fourth best gift. Now, finally, watch and rejoice every Sunday. 
as people serve in their gifting. The gift of administration. I tell this lady, thank you for serving our church. She always responds, it's not working. It's my passion. It's a joy. Gift of teaching. Thank you for teaching the Bible. Oh, you don't have to thank me. It's when I feel most alive. Gift of serving. Thank you for taking out the trash, for cleaning the room, for working in children's ministry. Oh, you don't have to thank me. It's an honor to serve the body. Don't wait on the sidelines for the perfect opportunity to serve. Jump in anywhere. You're not a spectator in the church. You are a servant in the church. Marita also says in this book, do you believe Jesus will return? Do you believe he will reward you for your service? Then let that inspire you to serve your local church. What changes are you willing to make in your schedule in order to serve? How might you find out about needs? Ask the pastors of your local church, what are the volunteer needs? Now, using your gifts for the body can and will make you tired. It will drain energy from you. And everyone in the children's ministry said, amen. <laughs> Serving can be exhausting if you're doing it in your own strength. Verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. God supernaturally gifts and God supernaturally supplies strength so that you can fulfill that serving. Now, Peter wraps it all up at the end of verse 11. Don't get excited. Just because Peter's wrapping it up doesn't mean I am. I still have three applications, so I got another 10 minutes, easy. But the end of verse 11. In order that in everything, this is all the service, all the gifts, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This doxology. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. One author wrote it this way. There are two great moments in a person's life. The moment you were born and the moment you realize why. Here it is. To bring God glory. I have three applications. One for non-Christians who think that all Christians are crazy end-time preppers. One for non-Christians who think that all Christians are crazy end-time preppers. One for Christians who may or may not have a bunker. One for Christians who want to prep biblically for the Lord's second coming. So let's take them one at a time. End-time prepper application number one. This is for non-Christians who think all Christians are crazy end-time preppers. Let me just look at you and say, we're not. Let me just clear that up. We've already prepped for the end time, for what Peter is writing about. We prepped for that by repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Non-Christian, you don't need to worry about the four things on Peter's end time prepper list because the only thing you need to do is be saved because when all things come to an end, you don't come to an end. You will live forever 
in the presence of God or in the wrath of God. The moment you stand before Jesus, your bank statements are meaningless. Your spot on the org chart is meaningless. Whether you're popular or not, meaningless when you stand before God. Don't dally with sin as if you have lots of time. At any moment, Jesus could return. End time prepper application number two. This is for Christians who may or may not have a bunker. Now, obviously, I am not saying you should not prepare for emergencies. Chances are some of you were very prepared for our last pandemic because you had a closet full of two-ply toilet paper. And you just sat back and laughed at all of us fighting in the aisles of Kroger. I'm all for spare tires, generators, flashlights, batteries, and candles. I'm all about emergency funds. I have one. This church has one. Prepare for emergencies. If that's what you're doing in your basement, then fine. But we all know this end-time prepper bunker mentality goes way beyond any of that. I don't see Paul or Peter or any of the apostles prepping in that way. I don't see any New Testament follower of Christ doing that. Stephen Davey humorously pointed out that spending your life getting ready for a cataclysmic event will still only provide you with three possible outcomes. First, he said, it's possible that after all your prepping, nothing cataclysmic happens and you die of old age. The second possible outcome is that something does happen and you die anyway. In other words, you had everything ready in your stocked underground compound but you were a few miles away the day when the cataclysmic event occurred and you didn't make it back into your bunker on time. So something did happen, but you died anyway. Or thirdly, something happened and you survived in your bunker. The cataclysmic event did occur and you and your family feasted on dehydrated food and sanitized water from your filtration system and you fought off all those starving neighbors who weren't prepared. But then eventually, you got sick and simply grew old and died anyway. There's some logic to this. Stephen Davey has written extensively on this. He pastors a church in my home state of North Carolina. And I guess there's a lot of preppers there, maybe in his area. Well, he says, and I want to read him at some length here. He says, nowhere is the believer commanded or even encouraged to prepare our lives or give our lives to prepare for some natural or biological disaster. In fact, there is an Old Testament verse that will never be the, the motto for modern day preppers. You're not going to find it hanging on, from the wall of their bunker. In the book of Genesis, God destroys in judgment the human race with a global flood. Everyone and everything on earth drowns except for Noah and his family. And the covenant God made where he promises to to never do that again is perpetually signaled by a rainbow. Now you know all of that. What's often overlooked is the detail of that covenant God delivers to Noah. And, and, and for the rest of human history as we know it, God has promised the same to us. He says to Noah in Genesis chapter 8, he says, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. That is, by the sending of the flood. Now notice, while the earth remains, 
This is before that. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Genesis 8, 21 and 22. You know what that means? In light of these promises which have never been set aside to this day, we still see the rainbow, but, but more than that, we don't have to fear the extinction of the human race because people are planting seeds and harvesting crops just like they are today. They're doing that for as long as they're on the earth. We don't need to fear the sun frying us to a crisp because we're given the promise here of cold weather. Further, we don't need to fear the collapse of the solar system or the destruction of the sun and moon because God is promising the continuation of the rotation of earth and the other planets and stars which will continue causing 24 hours cycles of day and night along with all the seasons, summer, winter, spring, and fall. Unless you're in Florida and then it's just summer all the time. Look, when it comes to worldwide, I'm not talking about local. When it comes to worldwide catastrophe scenarios, the Bible just kind of ruins the party. You know, I was researching all these end time prepper lists. And um, that was a waste of my time, honestly. It was. It was a waste of my time. But I was researching all these end time prepper lists. And I never saw one that said, make sure you have a Bible. <laughs> Not one. And I think that's because the Bible doesn't give us this bunker mentality. Now, end time application number three. This is for Christians who want to prep biblically for the Lord's second coming. Kyle, I, I want to prep. What should I do? Well, you should do the four things listed here. The four things Peter listed Sanchez says, living with the end in view is not radical Christianity, but normal Christianity. We are reminded of what Martin Luther supposedly said he would do if, if he knew the end would come today. Martin Luther said he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. You prepare for the end by living normal, gospel-centered lives. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.